Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Sydney, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. This episode's conversation is about us, the citizens, and how we need to be involved to make changes to government. The current situation is suboptimal, so how do we evoke change? Let's ask Luca Belgiorno-Nettis, Managing Director of Transfield Holdings and Prisma Investments. He is also a member of the UTS Vice-Chancellor's Industry Advisory Board and founder of the New Democracy Foundation, a non-for-profit research organization focused on political reform. Starship Enterprise and Steamship Democracy, a Florence Guild conversation with Luca Belgiorno-Nettis. Thank you very much for having me and Kami and the whole team um, having me back again. Uh, the, The subject tonight was a bit of a holding title, Steamship Democracy, Starship Enterprise, and perhaps I just need to say a few words about that because the subject of my talk is not really that, but it's just meant to be a bit of a sort of a, 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 a little attraction. So uh, I was intrigued by Soren's fascination with work and the future of work. So I thought, all right, I'd already talked about this metaphor, I already come up with this metaphor as Starship Enterprise. You know, it's the entrepreneur in us all. It's bold and it goes where no one's dead ever go before. And it goes very fast, almost faster than the speed of light, but you know, you know, you know what entrepreneurs are like. And then you've got steamship democracy. It's, all very, it's much slower, but it's arguably as important, if not more important. It's much slower because it actually needs to build consensus. Whereas, you know, the entrepreneurs just basically go out there, do their thing, crash and burn. Democracy needs to be building consensus. What are we agreeing on in terms of public policy? And actually needs to anticipate enterprise because what happens with enterprise, as we know, the economists have this wonderful euphemism, it's called externalities. Those externalities like here are property developers that build their apartments wherever they want to build them and they have no real interest in terms of their capacity to build public transport infrastructure. So those elements have to be provided for by the public, the government. So anyway, that's kind of just talking about that metaphor between Starship Enterprise and Steamship democracy. I normally, I don't normally talk ad lib to these sort of things, but um, I have on occasions. uh, You may be pleased to know that I've actually put together a presentation tonight, and that's why I'll be sort of referring to these notes. So bear with me. I'll try and make it as as, um, animated as possible, even though it's, it's it's a red presentation. 
Um, what I find when I do these presentations around political reform, they're usually broken into a preface and three parts, with the last part broaching the big question, what's the alternative to the current way we do politics? In part one, I try to identify what the problem is with politics today. In part two, I then suggest some explanations. And in the third and final part, I discuss some remedies. But first, the preface. So in 1988, I'll start in 1988, the American periodical, The Atlantic Monthly, published an article by a professor, James Fishkin, a professor at the University of Texas. In the article, he proposed that 1,500 citizens randomly recruited from all over America come together for two weeks and listen to the then presidential candidates Dukakis and George Bush Sr. and deliberate and try and get beyond the populism of the two campaigns. Thus was born the modern political philosophy known as deliberative democracy. Now it turned out that he actually didn't quite make it happen in 1988. And he, but he managed to get it together in 1996 when um, we know Clinton, and no, nobody forgets his running mate, or his, his, his um, campaigning opposite Mr. Dole. Fishkin managed to get a deliberative forum, a citizen jury happening uh, for that with 600 people, not 1,500. And so he managed to get together because, you know, it's quite a big resource exercise. You've got to source all these people from all over the, uh, the states. So around that time, though, two groups, one in the US and one in Germany, starting using this type of approach to understand what community attitudes were on any number of subjects, from town planning laws to local budgeting. So began citizen juries as a way of tapping into the community in a deeper way than focus groups or town hall meetings or surveys. So I probably need to explain, for, for most of you, I, I imagine you don't, uh, who, who understands what a citizen jury is in principle? Got a few hands there. So it's, for those who don't know, it's essentially a random recruitment of the community at large. And it usually happens, and we've now done about, um, the foundation that I'm involved in has done about 20 of these projects for government of various levels, whether it's local, state, or federal. And so, so I'll talk about the one that happened in Melbourne a couple of years back, uh, which was a quite a big project where the council was having a problem with its budget. It had kind of, as usual story, over-promised and didn't know how it was actually gonna pay for all of its you know, wonderful programs. So they, you know, this is kind of a, a, a rather jaundiced view of things, but you know, Chatham House rules, you know, they thought, oh, we'll, we'll just foist that problem off to a, a, a citizen jury, and if they can't get it right, then well, that's, you know, that's kind of their problem, it's not our problem anymore, sort of thing. As it turned out, uh, so what happens? The council, the Lord Mayor, sends out an invitation to, say, 15,000 Melbournians randomly recruited from the electoral roll or from their rates. Uh, sorry, not from their rates because um, some clearly Melbournians are tenants and some in fact are business owners. So there was a kind of a, a third, a third, a third selection there, but still randomly recruited. Uh, 
or randomly selected, uh, asking, would you like to be involved in this process? We're going to have 43 as the number, 43. Remember the magic, remember the, the, the answer to the question of the universe and everything is? 42. Thank you, 42. It's actually 43, uh, but it's a very interesting number, 42, 43. Statistically, we can talk about why it's 42 or 43, but it, anyway, it's a reasonable, it's a, we call it a descriptive representation of the community at large. Just think of a, a large classroom, you know, which would be a public school, you know, not the elite private school, but, you know, that'd be a, a nice mixture of, of people, if you like. And uh, talking about diversity, there's a real power in diversity. So after they were explained, they got this invitation, would you be prepared to be involved? It'll take five, of your, five Saturdays, uh, 50 hours face-to-face, -face hearing from experts of your choosing, hearing from the bureaucrats at the council about w what the budgets are about. Are you prepared to be interested? Are you prepared to put your hand up for that? From those 15,000, some 2,000 respond, say, yes, I'm prepared. And then from those 2,000, random recruitment again to, bring, to get to the 43. So it's, a, it's, a, it's just like it's as impartial and as representative possible as possible. It's clearly not a, 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 an obligatory exercise, not compulsory like it is in a criminal jury, but nevertheless, it's probably one, a, a better, we, we regard it as, as better practice in terms of trying to source a representative sample, a mini public of the community. So that's kind of, that's your citizen jury model. And, and that is the model that essentially has been developed since the time of James Fishkin in 1988 and has, so we're now talking close to 30 years that this, this process with deliberative Democrats like ourselves have been working on. So that's the preface. Deliberative democracy, citizen juries. That's kind of what we're working on. The first part now is what's wrong with our politics? Do I need to tell you? You know already, you're going to tell me. In affluent Australia, this year, leading the world as we know, with continuous uninterrupted economic growth, you know, for the last, you know, we're leading the world as you elites will know this, only still in this country, only 25% of the population agree with the statement, people in government can be trusted. 50 years ago, that percentage was double. In virtually every country, in survey after survey, the results are the same. Politicians don't rate much higher than car salesmen. Doctors, teachers and nurses remain the most respected. There are many good elements to our democratic system. The rule of law, the separation of powers, the freedom of the press, the freedom of association, etc. But I think the lack of respect for our politicians is the biggest single concern. I think that we've gradually lost faith in our political parties and politicians, whoever they are or whoever they claim to represent. So here we begin the second part. Why has our trust diminished in these important political institutions? In the last Australian election, barely a third of the electorate supported the winning party with the primary vote. Contemporary elections are regularly throwing up, I like this line, the, the, the least disliked politicians. 
It's almost an oxymoron. The least disliked politicians. Well, Trump might actually be an exception to that rule. He might be the most disliked. <laughs> no. No, I'm sorry. Might be Trump supporters here. Sorry. Um, in the UK, the US and France, it's even worse. Those countries have the most unrepresentative systems, the first past the post, whereby the winning candidate is lucky to garner 25% of the vote. Our political leaders aren't truly representative. In Australia, the, true, the two traditional political parties and their rusted on constituencies pretend to command a majority mandate even when they can only get a third of the primary vote. Every three or four years, we're subjected to another round of elections where real policy debate is usurped by the same old, same old Punch and Judy show. And as many more parties rise up, the result is a plethora of candidates, old and new, entreating us to believe that they can be no more deserving than themselves. The best the current system can offer is minority government dictated to by the crossbenchers, the independents and the smaller parties. Hansen, Xenophon, etc. As the two historic ideological positions of left and right morph into each other, just look at the last budget. What is it, Labour light or, 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 or uh, Liberal left? The two main parties have dispensed with principle and now have embarked on a win-at-all-cost strategy, even at the cost of good government. My hypothesis, our hypothesis in the Foundation and other, in, and, and other deliberative Democrats is that this suboptimal behaviour is likely to persist for the foreseeable future. And I think we are all instinctively recognise this unhealthy predicament, but we can't see any way out of it. The conventional wisdom is that the universal franchise is democracy's definitive and singularly incontrovertible template, and that nothing could be fairer than having the public adjudicate the outcome of a robust contest of ideas between articulate candidates. It's good if they're good looking and charismatic too. This contemporary political condition is a kind of electoral fundamentalism, a mindset captive to the dogma of free and fair elections, no matter how unfair and unrepresentative and banal they are. It's a bit heavy, sorry. Try and lighten, I'll not try and lighten that up. Yeah, we're coming to the remedies, the final part. Part three, so this is it. So the French proclaimed democracy is fraternité, égalité, liberté. Abraham Lincoln pronounced it as of, by, and for the people. The British gave us the Magna Carta and legitimized the criminal jury. We all remember that the Greeks invented it, but forget that there was no contest between candidates, no elections, only a contest of ideas. The Athenians actually invented democracy as sortition, the jury system. Politicians selected by lot from the whole citizen class, rich and poor. And I know the first reaction, and I keep saying this, the first reaction when I say that is they didn't have women and they didn't have slaves. Well, the US Congress was even worse. They had no women, no slaves and no poor men. Democratia. Any Greeks? Greeks. We have some Greeks here. 
Democracy was intrinsically representative and deliberative and the ultimate anti-power device. No contest, no winner, no loser. So, but as elections became ingrained in our modern psyche, sortition was not even remotely considered as a serious alternative. However, selection by lot had a distinguished history after Greece. Several European states, especially in Italy and in Florence and in Venice, chose their governing class in this way. And of course today it continues in criminal juries, but is still regarded as an inferior model for political representation, however equitable, because as the standard refrain goes, it's not meritocratic. Since the 1990s, sortition is finding favour again in several countries. The Irish marriage equality referendum arose from the 2012 Constitutional Convention that was made up of 99 members, 66 of whom were randomly recruited. And in South Australia last year, a citizen jury of 350 people passed judgment on a high-level nuclear waste facility. Citizen juries are scalable from a municipal to state, national or international level. The areas of jurisdiction are endlessly flexible, from relatively minor decisions up to and including all legislative tasks, to the exclusion of elections entirely. Obviously, it is both practical and prudent to start at a small scale and with a narrow mandate. Thus, an initial focus on municipal or state adoption makes sense, where existing elected officials are reluctant to make unpopular political no-win policy decisions and might be willing to transfer them to citizen juries. Sortition can be implemented in a variety of ways, ranging from small incremental changes to fundamental reforms. For example, sortition can be used to deal with, number one, one law, as with the Canadian Citizens' Assembly of 2006, or make all laws within one issue, for example, an area where legislators have a conflict of interest, such as campaign finance laws. I mean, I've just had a discussion with, with a, 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 um, a senior politician who used to be one of the principal fundraisers for one of the main parties, political parties, just this afternoon. And he thinks that whole political funding framework is totally broken. I mean, it's, it's clearly corrupt in the sense that people are not, corporates are not actually giving money to political parties with the sense that it's just a, a, benef a beneferal, benefery, benefic beneficiary exercise, there is a sense of some payback. And, and so what's happening now with most corporates, and you've seen it with the National Bank last year, NAB, they've basically said no more funding to any political party. So it's an obvious for me that if, just if you want to, as, as a saying, start to explore the capacity and the potential beyond public policy matters, if you like, which we are already doing for government, both state, federal and, and, and local, to have a citizen jury investigate the whole question of campaign finance laws. And, and, uh, and it's absolutely logical in the sense that if you leave it to the politicians, that's, that's a clear poacher gamekeeper exercise. So for, for me, it's a no-brainer that a citizen jury sh should be involved in in determining campaign finance laws. So that's number two. I'm gonna finish here now. I've just, I've only got five 
of these potential opportunities for juries and how they might evolve into our political consciousness. We could enhance the deliberative quality of a referendum process. So now uh, in the US state of Oregon, uh, and this, this has clearly been borne out by Brexit, um, what, what is required, I mean, referendums are ter terrible things in the sense that they get captured by the campaigning on both sides, and that clearly was a sense that was going to happen with the marriage equality exercise here in, in Australia. And, and, you know, people were very concerned about that. You know, it had become a toxic campaign exercise. So one way to sort of diffuse that is what they've done in Oregon. So Oregon says, all right, any referendums that you want to have, let's put it to a citizen jury beforehand. Let that citizen jury, randomly recruited, representative of the community at large, deliberate and consider, hear from the experts, the, the existing campaign major campaigns, but he, hear from whoever they want to hear from and deliberate and come to some recommendation. And those recommendations are put on the ballot paper. So when the, when the, the mug voter goes in to, to make his choice and he gets to see this beforehand, he, he, he's, he's got some sense of where, where the, the impartial discussion and arguments can go. So that's number three. Number four, trial a citizen senate as an experiment to replace the upper house of a bicameral legislature. So uh, this is a kind of favourite of mine too. So even in this, this question of the marriage equality debate, I mean, everyone, we know most people, um, the, the, the statistics are there, 70% of the population want it to happen. It's not happening, why is it not happening? Because you've got an unrepresentative group in government that's just blocking it. You had a citizen senate I mean, I'm not, not suggesting that it would happen, but it's most likely that, it would, that just as an example, they would pass that. So imagine the dynamic that that would make, that would put on the, 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 the normally elected legislature. It would give, give them some something to, to think about. You know, here is a real representative group of people who've deliberated on this and chosen to do something else. You know, that, that to me is, is, is a valuable... Uh, legitimate uh, alternative Senate. But as, as I say, these things need to be trialled. So we're talking about evolving, socialising what clearly is, is a radical proposition. And it's a radical proposition as much because what, what um, we, there is a Belgian political philosopher called David Van Raybroek, and he's talked about uh, electoral fundamentalism. I, th I think I, m I mentioned it here. You know, it's this notion that, you, you know, you talk about, I love this antidisciplinary. I mean, here we've got, we've got some white space here. You know, we, here are these black dots and these black dots are not working terribly well for us. Well, you know, can't we look at this white space? Oh, no, 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 we've got this free and fair election stuff. You know, we, oh, oh, this is sacrosanct. We can't really touch that. I mean, that's the heart of democracy. Sorry. Democracy was not conceived as elections. Democracy was conceived as an inclusive, representative, deliberative space. The genius. In fact, it's, I, you know, I, I would argue it's probably the, you know, I'm a little passionate and, you know, I'm sort of vested in this cause, but, you know, you can argue that of all the social inventions of humankind, that one was one of the most 
powerful. But we've completely forgotten it. We think the democracy is all about, oh, we're going to stand up here and have a debate and, hey, listen, oh, he's not much good. We're going to do some cheap point scoring. I mean, you know, he's got tattoos, don't like that, you know. <laughs> he loses the debate already, you know. I mean, what is this? The beauty about democracy as originally conceived, it was the debate about the issues. It wasn't a debate about the candidates. They took them out of the picture altogether. We are just discussing the issue and there's no vested interest in the outcome of that issue because you've got, well, of course, we've all got our interests, but you're trying to minimise those interests by not having all these lobby groups, campaign funding, all these, ide these ideological positions which are basically uh, just constrain, constrain a capacity to actually come to some common ground. I argue that democracy was conceived as social cohesion, not as a divisive political debating society, what I describe as a B-grade high school debating society. That's the way it is now. All that cheap point scoring, it's so obvious, we all see it. But we just go along with it because we have no sense that we can do anything else. So, number five, last position. This is the radical position, but you know, we could get there. Who knows? But we've got to work through these others first, you know, socialise it, you know, we can't scare the horses. Carry out the entire legislative process in the place of an elected legislature. Now, th this is a very, that's one line. It's a very complex subject, that last line. Um, I would recommend to you, and I'm very happy to send you the book. If anyone's interested, I'll send you David Van Raybrook's book, which has actually just been reviewed in, la in last Friday's Financial Review <coughs> in their lift out uh, review section. Front page, the review of David's book. Good, good review. And he outlines in that book actually how you could specifically, because there's all this notion about, oh, how do these randoms, you know, really manage an executive class, you know, where does the prime minister sit in this, you know, all of that. I mean, these are legitimate questions. They're serious questions. But the, if, you, if you acknowledge that the, the, the basic problem with our democracy at the moment is this fraught political representation exercise, then let's see how we might address that. And in the process, let's not lose the capacity of having an effective, executive, productive government. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're all interested in. We're interested in effective government. What we're doing today is suboptimal, absolutely suboptimal. We've got all this, this, I mean, you know, where is it? Gonski part one, Gonski part two, you know, can't we get some, can't we get some common ground? I just no, because they're all afraid to, oh, I can't agree with him because he came up with that idea. If I agree with him, I'm going to lose my brand position. I mean, you know, I don't want to do that. I've got to be seen to be different. They manufacture their differences. This is the, this is the predicament that we find ourselves in. I'm getting a little carried away. I'm, fi I'm going to, I'm finishing there. I, I don't, we're going to have questions and answers or, well, I don't know about answers, but there may be questions. Thank you. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.